0: Welcome to Descender from Klarna, a podcast where we dive deep below the surface of design. I'm your host, Rachel Rosenson, and this mini series, I'll deep dive into the world of UX writing with some market leaders. Today, we'll deep dive into what informs a writer's work, be it your inspiration process, or how you stay up to date on the latest writing trends. How you seek out, absorb, reflect, and are impacted by the words around you matters. Sharing with us their personal processes today is Megan Cooper and Ben Davies. As with, a lot of user, as with a lot of UX writers, Megan Cooper didn't start out this way. She's a rogue political scientist turned UX champion who made the jump from the ivory towers of academia and academic publishing into the murky pool of user experience in 2019 and hasn't looked back since. It's far more interesting in the thick of it. With a passion for balancing consistency with cups of joys, She's currently entrenched in the app to pay team at Klarna, focusing on the post-purchase payments journey. Hey, Megan, how's it going? Pretty good. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. Also with us today is Ben Davies. Ben Davies is a product manager turned UX writer with an obsession for behavioral economics, a passion for localization, and a useful talent for making balloons out of mozzarella. At Klarna, they work within the virtual shopping team in London, collaborating with product designers to help retailers connect with online shoppers. Before Klarna, they worked on language learning products, meditation apps, and voice-based navigation at startups across Berlin and Madrid. Chat with them on Twitter at Ben the BenTheUXWriter. Okay, Ben, we have to get into it. What is making balloons out of mozzarella exactly?
1: It involves a helium canister making mozzarella pliable enough so that you can put it over the end and then actually inflating them. It's a very, very useful skill that I haven't yet monetized, but hopefully one day.
0: And this is something you actually eat? Is like a gourmet Michelin kind of popped mozzarella?
1: I think course. it sounds more impressive than it tastes, to be honest, because you end up kind of with that cold, was melted, no longer melted mozzarella balloons. But you can fill it with like garlic smoke and aromas and stuff. so. It's quite interesting we'll, we'll make them one day we'll have a mozzarella balloon session
2: oh i can't wait i can't wait is next is trick? the mozzarella floating away or something
1: maybe we should do that release a bunch of mozzarella balloons at some stage
0: it's going to be the new dance flash mob except it's mozzarella ballooning
1: <laughs> I, w- I would be all for that
0: but not that there isn't so many more questions i have about this topic but maybe refocusing in on the episode at hand. So today we're going to be talking all about inspiration and I'm super curious as, as a designer to talk with you all about this, because as a designer, I know how this kind of works. I know we've got Dribbble, we've got these apps and people are talking about it and you see the Twitter feeds and I'm just so curious in the UX writing world, what this kind of process looks like. So at the start, where are you finding inspiration for your day-to-day work? Maybe Ben, you can start us off with this one.
1: Yeah, sure, thanks. So I think for UX Writing, I've been kind of on the hunt for some sort of really nice collection of good examples, and I haven't found anything yet. Maybe make my resource. But personally, I kind of just take inspiration from all the apps I use. I try and make a point of every day going to the app store and downloading something from the What's New section and spending like five minutes just playing around with it. You find some absolute gems in there. This morning, for example, I found this one called Dino Plays, which is a music game with a dinosaur. And I kind of do this to kind of see a lot of UX writing in different contexts I wouldn't normally see. Because I think if you're just sticking with apps you normally use, it can be quite narrow in terms of you. So, for example, this morning in this app, it's a game. I wouldn't normally play this game. I wouldn't normally know it exists. And they had such cool examples of like positive reinforcement every time you did something nice in the app. I had, they had the word perfection pop up with little animations, and it was really nice. So, I take a dozen screenshots every time I do something like this. I think some people have camera rolls filled with like food pics, holiday pics. I just have screenshots from apps, which is a little bit sad. Maybe I need to go get some hobbies other than random apps and mozzarella balloons. But then I'll look through these screenshots and kind of that's how I get my inspiration.
0: Wow. And how long have you been doing that process for?
1: For a couple of years now, I think it started when I was working as a product manager in the past for meditation apps specifically. I would kind of use every meditation app going, cause it was such a saturated market. So I'd go every day and find a new meditation app try it out screenshot the whole flow and i started building up this bank and what i do every now and then is i throw these screenshots in this giant figma file to be honest it's got a lot of screenshots in there but there i have everything grouped i have exams of push notifications i have onboarding flows, just have all my inspiration there in one place and it's been really good to kind of have that to refer to oh
0: that's a total dream i need to be doing that I think, I feel like that's the kind of thing I would say I would do, do it for three days and then like quickly become lazy. I
1: haven't put anything in this Figma file since December, probably, something I'm like, I'll do this weekly and then I don't. But every now and then it's it's kind of that productive procrastination when you don't feel like doing anything else.
0: Absolutely. Cool. And and what about you, Megan? How How are you finding
2: inspiration these days? Man, I wish I would have gone first, because that does it impressively. I feel like I do somewhat similar things whenever I see something in the wild, as they say, like whenever I'm buying something, I'll be like, oh, this, is, this would be really interesting to compare with like what, what we do at Klarna, so I take a bunch of pictures. And then I never look at them again, but I guess it's sitting in my head anyway. But I would say there's kind of a difference now between when I was like first starting out because when I was first starting out, I was like very much looking at like places like UX writing collective and the uh, UX writing hub, and then on media and dribble, especially like checking in daily or weekly, but it's really tapered off now. Maybe it's because I, I work really deep within the product. I work on like the payments side at uh, Klarna so it's very much micro coffee like this is kind of standard in the industry then <laughs> I don't go for inspiration so much anymore but I'm definitely going to steal Ben's idea like that's amazing
0: <laughs> yeah it's this interesting point of of how do you kind of keep fresh eyes to the world around you and always be keeping an eye out for this stuff which I feel like there is things we could be looking at all the time, but sometimes it's hard to remember to notice them. Or like you mentioned, maybe it's just happening subconsciously. But I guess because of that, there's this question of, I guess, casual inspiration versus going out and seeking the inspiration in ways like Biden's doing. How do you decide like which method to go for? Or, like why do you need to make that active hunt for inspiration?
2: I'm working on a project. I generally try to do like a benchmarking, which is sort of, like what you're talking about, going out and looking for something specifically. And I, what helps to really help round it out is you can look at something that is exactly like what you're trying to do, like a direct competitor. But then you can also sometimes look at somewhat completely indirect competitors like like Mindler or like yeah, Headspace or they do a really good job of like creating the right vibe. So um, like a calming sort of vibe. And since we work in like the payment space, it can be very hectic and the stakes are high so it's good to to bring it down a bit
1: yeah i would definitely agree with that with benchmarking as well and i often find the teams i work with have kind of ideas of other apps or other product in mind when they're briefing me for kind of a new flow or a new feature so kind of just asking right at the beginning okay send me a list of or your inspiration because I find often they'll have it in mind, but they won't say something because they don't want to bias the way I write. But then actually it's super helpful to see those at the beginning and not be told at the end, oh, could you do it more like Shopify, for example. So kind of getting those competitors at the beginning as well and using those as benchmarks.
0: Does that ever feel frustrating or limiting to, to be aware of maybe what the competitors are doing?
1: Yeah, I I think sometimes it can be frustrating because I think there are definitely trends in UX writing. I think it's the same with design. It's the same with any field and you start to notice kind of a lot of very like homogeneous approaches across the board. For me personally, for example, if I read another error message with the word oops in it, well, I won't say what I'll do, but I, I won't be very happy about it. I have quite a unnecessarily emotional reaction to reading oops now, because I've just seen it too many times and it feels cliched and done. So I think it's also a case of seeing what others are doing, but also knowing it's okay to kind of disagree with those approaches as well. And think not only why do I disagree, but also what would I change about it? And then trying that out in the context I'm working on and seeing if actually it works or if there is a reason it was that way to begin with. Yeah,
2: and similar to Ben, I would say also There's a lot of times we get pushback from stakeholders like can't you make it more like Apple or something Uh, or make it quirky and like they they have something specific in mind and you just think like well, we made it all like Apple then we'd all be Apple and then there's no there's no personality there's nothing nothing going on there. And also like we have to think about the reason why they did it that way, like that it's not necessarily the, the approach might not work as well for us so just really questioning. We can't just make everything like Apple. We have to question and try to do something maybe new, maybe not new, but <laughs> something that works.
0: We've talked in some other episodes with writers who talk about this challenge as a UX writer. Sometimes there is this atmosphere and this brand and, and the vibe, as you say, Megan, and sometimes it is just hyper-functional copy. And I'm curious when it comes to inspiration, are you looking at competitors when it comes to this hyper-functional text as well? I would say it's a
2: bit of a mix because in some cases, so one of the products I'm working on now is to come up with consistent wording around the term payment methods. And some people were asking for branded version, like we can make it quirky or whatever. But in the case of when you're just trying to get across something very specific that already has a known definition, then that's kind of where I try to reel it back a bit to rely upon. like if we're adding brand personality here and it's making it more difficult for people then that's the wrong place to do it
1: when you bring up the word quirky that's kind of word i hear a lot from clients as well when they're referencing kind of how they want the tone of voice to be or they're giving feedback on like a specific piece of copy and they say oh can you make it a bit more quirky you humor, put a bit of humor in there and sometimes it's appropriate and you, you can brand things up a little bit introduce a bit of personality but sometimes it is inappropriate like I've I've had requests to make error messages about payment being declined funny. I think, well, if my payment were declined, I probably wouldn't be feeling humor at that point of the user journey. So I think it's also pushing back sometimes and saying, we're here, we're kind of writing to inform. So we're not gonna take the approach that maybe someone else has, because it would be inappropriate and in just keeping our own brand's tone of voice in mind.
0: Yeah, it's a delicate balance of like taking in the inspiration, but then also making the call based on on what's out in front of you. It seems like you're referencing a lot of benchmarking. I look at other apps and industry leaders. Do you feel like as UX writers, the majority of your inspiration is coming from the UX writing? Especially because both of you have had these other careers outside of UX writing. I mean, maybe starting with you, Ben, as someone coming from the product management world, how that might affect your inspiration.
1: Definitely. I think as a product manager, I was always very much focused kind of on the UX side of things. I'm not a technical person in the slightest. So I think I always have kind of behavioral economics and behavioral science in mind when I approach UX writing. that's where I draw a lot of inspiration from. So it's also kind of keeping in mind what product teams, KPIs are, what they'll be working towards, what kind of engagement they want to foster, these kinds of things when I'm approaching UX writing, but then finding a way to do it that works the best for the user and actually guiding the user through that process. But I think before being a product manager, I was a teacher. I was an English teacher teaching English second language in Spain. And there as well, teaching is all about guiding your students to learn something and to kind of achieve something and very much kind of what UX writing is about, guiding users towards achieving something. So I think I kind of see a lot of overlap there. I know a lot of UX writers who do have this um, academic background. I think Megan, you can speak a lot better. So that then I can as well.
2: I don't know about better, but like well my background is in political science but I, I leaned heavily towards like uh, text analysis was my thing. So I was really set up for UX writing before I even knew about it. But then in the world of academia, it's much more like, how do you, I mean, you need to engage a community, but the community is academics. So really thinking about the audience and how you're trying to bring across your arguments, bringing those two things together, it was very much reflective of what we're doing here, but it's just a much broader audience and uh, somebody, and you're trying to achieve something else. Like you're trying to get them engaged in a process and complete something that they wanna complete instead of think critically about the text analysis, I don't know, Brexit. And then for a while I work in academic publishing and that was even more so like trying to match an audience with a text and how do you get more citations? How do you get like people excited about an academic article on geology?
0: That's interesting. I mean, I have to imagine that in academia, wow, this is gonna be an uneducated sentence. I have to imagine academic papers are long. But that's a very different type of writing. And I'm curious how that muscle translates into the world of UX writing.
2: Yeah, well, it was a bit of a transition because I did my master's, I wrote my master's thesis. And that was very much that sort of writing. But when I came into the world of academic publishing, it was more about getting people engaged in these things. So I think it was a a lot, it was a smoother transition down there. Like we try to work with like social media and with events to engage with a broader public and speak in a different way. I would say like in a a welcoming way. So
0: you're already learning how to maybe use that same kind of framework or or methodologies at, at an abstract level. And then you're just kind of just swapping out maybe what the output is in a certain way. I mean, for both of you, since you come from this love of language, whether it's teaching or taking your career so far in in publishing, I'm curious how you then decided that UX writing was the next path to take with this skill set, because there's so many different ways a writer could work. Ben, maybe you, from the teacher to the writer.
1: Yeah, I think um, UX writing was something I kind of fell into by accident. So I think I'd been working originally as kind of an editor for Babbel which is a language learning app. And I'd been writing language learning courses and didn't realize it was actually UX writing or content design. We just didn't call it that. I realized I'm making it sound like 20 years ago, it was 10 years ago, but it kind of wasn't a term that was around. And then when I transitioned into product management, because I was living in Berlin at the time, I always ended up taking over the English copy for my apps. And it was always a bit of an afterthought. And I thought, this is such a shame if I had time to actually sit down and think about things the UX would be so much better for the English speaking users, but instead they've got my rushed English copy. And it was at a conference about fostering sustainable engagement or or some fancy title like that, where I met a UX writer for the first time. And it was a bit of a light bulb moment. I thought, wow, okay, someone's job is actually to sit there and consider all of these things that I've been wanting to consider, but just don't have the time to and kind of speaking to her, and she sent me a bunch of resources afterwards as well, kind of was how I got interested in UX writing before transitioning then into UX writing full time
2: super cool. And what about you Megan? Ben very, it seems like Ben had a very purposeful journey. I really sort of fell into it, I suppose. Like the parts about academic publishing that I liked were sort of engaging with the audience and helping academics publish things and review things, but the other part was just 90% admin and I was <laughs> I was kind of sick, sick of that and I wanted to do a bit more like solving problems for actual people. So I kind of got into uh, UX design actually. I did a year at Berg School of Communication in Stockholm, shout out. Uh, and after that, I really had it in my sights to become a UX designer until I saw this job posting for UX writer. And I thought, wow, is that a thing? <laughs> Can I do that? That's That sounds great. And so then I started reading up on all these blogs, uh, like kind of reaching out to people in the community and being like, what is this about? I applied and I got it. I feel like since the first day on the job, I've really been learning more about myself as a writer myself as a designer and thinking about like what is seems pretty pretty blurry if you ask any ux writer or designer yeah so that's really how i kind of fell, fell into it the organic ways in which it
0: happens is quite cool product design i think now has become a bit more established but i feel like when i was studying it 10 years ago it was the same kind of sentiments of like all of my professors said, you know, we kind of just made this up. Like, I don't know how I got here. And, And now it feels like there's more and more courses for product design. It's more of an established thing, but it feels like UX writing is making those, those first leaps and bounds into kind of the courses and this official way. But I just think it's always so interesting how people kind of find these roles and. And I think it shows that it's it's more than just looking for inspiration within UX writing, that it is just kind of this overall mindset, which is same to a designers. I mean, it is a, a designer at the end of the day. One of the other questions I am curious about then, because as a product designer, I certainly get sick of projects. I get sick of staring at the same screen over and over and, and just redoing tweaks that seem endless. As a UX writer, what do you do when you just feel a bit black with the project that you're working on? How are you making it inspiring for yourself to work on?
2: As you, as you mentioned, it can get a bit dull, but I feel like somewhat of a difference between the UX design, UX writing is, one of my methods is I have a crazy ideas section too much into this, where I think like, this sounds like a robot, what is happening? Then I'll just write this separate section where I'll just, you're right, like, what did you do, you know, for an error, or like, it's not you, it's us, or just a bunch of like other, obviously won't actually use, but like push, pushing the the envelope, or this is a stupid project or something, you know, and then just get it all out of my system. And sometimes I find some inspiration there, like, oh, that would be an interesting way to bring in softness or a bit of understanding to something that's could be as Ben mentioned before it could be like a negative experience and maybe we don't have to make a joke but maybe we can be a bit softer a bit more empathetic because I feel like sometimes when the people say make it quirky what they really mean is like just don't make it sound like a robot or don't make it sound like too serious because that can go the other direction of freaking people out instead of making them aware of the problem.
1: (laughs) I definitely want to see your crazy ideas section as well I bet there's a lot of inspiration in those sections I, th- I think it's it's like megan said sometimes just kind of having that space to test out a couple of wild card ideas i think one thing i might add is if you do have the opportunity i think being able to just go back and speak to some users is always really helpful i think one thing i like to is just kind of Show a user a flow, and sometimes I, I do a closed test. So that's closed with a Z, where you remove like some of the words, and you ask user, "What word do you think goes in there?" And that can be a really good way of just kind of sparking a bit of inspiration. Then you're figuring out how would your users actually speak about this themselves. What kind of words would they use? And you can really the corpus. I think when you're approaching like a flow or a feature, and you can use that corpus for inspiration. So I, I think yeah, if, if you do have the chance, speak to your users, which I think is something we should be doing more of, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
0: imagine that that must be a challenge for some UX writers who are maybe coming from a different type of writing profession. Maybe user research is one of the more unique aspects of being a UX writer that you haven't experienced in other realms of writing. How, Ben, did you start getting involved in
1: that? Definitely. yeah. I think so my first kind of bit of user research that I did was when I was working for this tiny, tiny startup in Berlin, I think we had 15 people on the team and uh, we had no user research ever done. So, kind of everything we were doing was based on kind of assumptions we were making, which is dangerous. We were starting to see kind of drop off in the app and we weren't sure why. It's kind of okay, our assumptions aren't correct, but we need to know why they're not correct. So, I started doing kind of Friday user research where every Friday I would just kind of speak to random people. And it was really kind of a bit of a shamble. Sometimes I'd just go sit in a cafe and strike up conversation with random people at the table next to me, which then meant I became famous in the area and people would avoid me if they saw me sitting in a cafe. (laughs) <laughs> just trying to speak to users anywhere I could and get their feedback on kind of how do you find this product, how do you find the tone of voice? Does this speak to you? Does this resonate with you? Why, why not? So that's kind of my first taste of it. And kind of I then started trying to learn kind of how to be a good user, researcher, kind of good methodology as well, the different kinds of user interviews, usability testing. It's something I'm still learning as well every morning, trying to read like a medium post on best practice as well but yeah it it can also be a struggle to find time in your schedule and
0: what about you Megan I mean I guess you said you did a UX design program
2: so maybe you had a bit more of an introduction but what was your experience there yeah exactly Uh, I did a master's in in social sciences so of course we had like a methodology section and like quantitative qualitative methods of uh, research but yeah I didn't really start Doing it out in the field until I did my UX design program, and that was very much like as Ben mentioned, like just going out and talking to people. It feels like for an introvert, this is like really like design is a community of you know, people. You need need skills, especially since I did my course in Swedish in Sweden. So at the time, my my Swedish wasn't great, so I was like walking up like please, can you, can you maybe helps me? You know, I feel like that might've been charming. People, a lot of people responded to me. They're like, sure, I could take five minutes. So basically is putting yourself out there and then have about what you're asking about. Cause especially when you're a student, you're kind of like, this is my baby. It's the best idea that I've ever had. Please don't hit me. It, it kind of, it helps to, to bring you down and really get to a sort of objective level but then i transitioned from like the design side to the actual writing side you realize you really have to be careful with what words you're using because if you really want to know about how people actually talk about this have to avoid giving them words because then they will use that word and they'll use it throughout and then if you do like six to eight user tests with people you'll be like oh everybody mentioned this word and then you try to put that concept out in the field And it just doesn't resonate without the context, without like you know the conversation with somebody who gave you that word.
0: And do you have an example? Like, how are you conducting research about words if you don't want to be using the word? Do you have an example, maybe of a past project, how you set it up specifically?
2: Well, I can talk about one I'm doing right now, where I'm I'm kind of doing what Ben the close method that Ben's talking about uh, that mentioned before where you really block out the thing and say like what do you think would go here you give them three different options and say you're trying to do this thing which one would you click on (laughs) Uh, that's if you want to give them options or i mean you could just have a conversation with people about like their spending habits or something because spending is a bit of a neutral word and they'll come up with other things like other words around that yeah so those are the three main methods that i guess i use
1: i think that's a really good point that you made there megan about just having a conversation as well and kind of just getting a, a corpus of language built up i think about how people actually speak about it, but it can be tricky. We had an example recently as well with naming where we were trying to come up with a new name, but we wanted to get inspiration from users. So we wanted them to suggest names, because these were some users who had been using our product for a long time. We found they just weren't coming up with kind of ideas because it's a difficult thing to do. And we tried out things like showing them a couple of really bad (laughs) ideas and suggestions, which prompted them then to come up with some really good suggestions. But yeah, sometimes you have to be a bit creative in prompting those answers.
0: So intentionally yeah. show them bad things.
1: This isn't my work. I won't be offended by your honest opinion. You can be as harsh as you like. You won't hurt my feelings, so be harsh.
2: Brilliant. I mean, there's a common saying on the internet. Like, if you want to answer quickly on the internet, you don't post a question. You post a wrong answer. <laughs> and then all of these people will come in to, to correct you. Sounds
1: yeah. like we should try user testing via Twitter or Reddit, posting something bad, and then creating a pile of or something.
2: This is the stupidest thing I ever heard. Really now <laughs> what's better? I think it's a great method.
0: I think it makes a lot of sense. And then, I mean, what I've always heard with research is you can really speak to six to eight people and you're kind of going to hear it all. Like really the, the wide variety of, of feedback is going to be there, but I do feel like language has such a relationship with dialect and and really does vary across countries. It's not just based on the language itself, but really the region. So if you are doing something looser, like just conversations and seeing what kind of terms pop up, how are you making sure that that really is the right thing for such a broad audience of language speakers?
1: Which is kind of just always be aware of who you're speaking to. I think especially for English, for example, in the UK, we have so many different accents. Like, I go up the road and they're calling bread rolls or a loaf of bread, something different. And it's really confusing. So kind of just being aware of where people are from, where they feel, what their background is, because that, that kind of gives you information on their dialect, their idiolect as well. So how they as an individual kind of express themselves and their social act as well. I think that's a big thing in, in English, kind of how their background kind of informs the way they speak. I think this is also where doing something like a closed test uh, where you do like to fill in the missing words Can be really good because that you can send out to a lot more people, kind of get a lot more input as well, and get a range of answers. Whereas with the interviews, of course, ideally you'd speak to people from lots of different backgrounds. But if you do only have the time to speak to six to eight, try and get kind of a diverse cross section of individuals if you can.
2: We always try to do like at least half from the US half from the UK Mm -hmm. just as that captures a lot of I mean as you say there's a lot of dialects within the UK and there's slightly less but a lot in the US as well but at least you capture like those two and in between. I mean, I'm originally from Chicago, but then also lived in California and I've now been living abroad for, for
0: eight or nine years. And subconsciously I change my slang depending on who I'm speaking to. Like if I'm with another Midwesterner, my accent ramps up and and like the kind of words I'm using totally change. And when my German friends hear me do that they're immediately confused because midwest slang is not as popular in TV as New York and California so people just haven't heard these word choices before
1: it's amazing but nothing changes the way you speak English more than living abroad I was in Madrid in Germany for nine years and I didn't realize I had slowed down the way I spoke and simplified and kind of wasn't using so much idiom until I moved back to the UK with my partner who's Italian and only and me speaking English in berlin and he he said after a couple of months you sound so posh what happened i thought do i and i spoke to a german friend and she said yeah your voice has changed you don't sound like the same person so you kind of do adapt don't you to the audience you're speaking to
2: i also had like a similar situation where i haven't lived in the u.s since 2008 i think (laughs) i was originally hired on uh, like my first ux writing job because i'm an american and they wanted to like conquer the American market, and I'm like, sure, haven't lived there for a minute, but I can do this. Uh, and constantly being asked in meetings, like, what's the American perspective on this? And I'm, like, I'm from a specific part of a specific country, and I haven't lived anywhere in there for, for 10 years. I hope they're not regretting hiring me. Because, Ben, you also mentioned that you were
0: originally brought on as more of like the English speaker who was in this small startup, so organically this role kind of came to you. And that, that's wildly challenging since you guys as experts know that there's more to language than that. So how do you even write for knowing that you have this bias of where you probably come from and, and the old language and words that you use?
1: I, I think it's very much recognizing your own kind of dialect, your own idiolect specifically as well. So I think with UX writing, one thing I learned very quickly was my own style. And I became hyper aware of oh my goodness, I like a good wordy sentence. I love a compound sentence, which is a terrible thing to say as a UX writer. I use words like just indiscriminately. I sometimes use exclamation marks too much. So kind of realizing that and spotting that when I was doing my work and thinking, oh no, it sounds like it's written by me rather than by the company I'm working for or by someone who would work for this meditation app or this language. So I think it was kind of, it sounds super cheesy, but this kind of journey of self-discovery and becoming aware of your own writing style and then learning how to kind of strip that out as well and neutralize the way you're writing, writing different styles as well. I think a really cool exercise is to take a very neutral sentence and see if you can write it in like an irreverent way or in a serious way or in a polite way. Kind of just teach yourself those different tones as well. But I think the other thing with English, because obviously English can cover so much, I get this a lot where I was in consultancy until recently. And a lot of clients would say, can you just do the American copy as well? I'd say, sure. It's, it's not going to sound very good to Americans. Sure, we all speak the same, exactly the same, but it's it's also with English, you get so many non-English natives. So I think there's also this, this thing like international English and being aware of how to write simply without too much idiom, without starting your sentences with a verb ending in, for example, these things that can really make sentences hard to understand, to being aware of international English as well, to simplify the way you write.
0: Do you think that understanding of international English came from your years of working abroad? Or is it something that if you had just stayed working as a Brit in the UK, you you would have had that same understanding for?
1: I studied languages at university, so I love learning languages. I'm an absolute kind of language nerd. I'm the kind of person who my idea of a good Friday night is uh, sitting at home learning Swahili. So I've always kind of been hyper aware of how languages work and kind of challenges in communicating, especially in English. English is a horrible language to learn. Uh, We are so privileged to be English natives because my goodness we've made it tricky to learn so i've always kind of been interested in that but it wasn't until i lived abroad where even learning things like an emoji can have different connotations like the first time i sent a sticky out tongue emoji to a colleague on slack in germany and my manager said can you not do that that's flirty um realizing oh i was just trying to be cheeky won't use that again it kind of then just doing it in practice
0: what about you megan as, as someone who's been working abroad like you mentioned almost a uh... Wow. Very long time. I can't do that math off the top of my
2: head, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I I lived in Australia for two years and then I lived in Sweden for 10. So, well, in Australia, they just like, they just mock you for years until you learn to like speak a bit different. And then you go back to the U.S., you know, finally home. And no one will ask me where I'm from. And the first question I get is, are you from Australia? So kind of learning to, to be a, somewhat of a chameleon. But then in terms of writing, also, when I started out with my career, I was told I was hired on because they thought uh, they thought I was American. They were right. I am American, but they they wanted the American perspective. And my first like couple efforts were like super branded, very American things. And then you start thinking about, of course, localization, translation and like all these. And I feel like it's really helped to sort of bring down not the lowest common denominator but like the most common denominator i would say sounds a bit more positive of of things that like you don't come up with a very cool rhyming thing. You can come up with something that could work in a bunch of different languages and still sounds fun. It just added like another piece to the puzzle.
0: I think the relationship with language changes so much as you live abroad. And I don't know, I think it's quite interesting. I think we've talked about a lot about inspiration in a positive sense, you know, you're actively going out and looking for things. We've talked about different research methodologies, bringing in the user's perspective, how you're kind of doing silly things on the side or pushing yourself to writing in different languages. But when you're up, absolutely up against the wall, what is the kind of advice that you have for yourself or, or for other writers out there?
1: I think one thing I have tried to do, especially with writer's block, is there are some days, I had it this morning, to be honest, where I wrote a sentence that was so grammatically bad. I just thought no one should ask me to write anything today because I clearly can't write. But also just when you have those moments of writer's block, it can be really hard to overcome. So one thing, this sounds really gross, but I, I think I try and write a vomit draft and I think this is a term used quite widely in things like script writing and books, but kind of just get something out there without thinking too much. Because I think, especially when you sit staring at a string and it's, it's especially buttons and microcopy, they are the worst. It can take hours to write one word sometimes. So you just need to do a vomit draft. Just get something down and then show it to someone, get feedback. So often that feedback will help you kind of find the right answer or reveal something that your stakeholders wanted you to do that they hadn't revealed beforehand. So I think that's kind of the one thing I would say, always do a vomit draft. Don't overthink sometimes. Yes, our job is about thinking how to solve problems, how to guide users through the, the user journey, but if you start vomit draft, I'm gonna stop saying vomit draft now.
2: One more time, you'd like to vomit at <laughs> us. I was, I mean, you you stole you stole my my idea and branded it much better than I was going to say. Uh,
1: you probably had a nicer way of terming it than her. Uh,
2: <laughs> I was just gonna say, well, I think an important to keep in mind is we're not curing cancer here like and also ux writing is a community like we it's not prefer sitting there alone writing everything and not getting any feedback or any input so if i really hate something as ben says i'll just like send it to one of my colleagues and like please fix this (laughs) what 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 am i doing like what is wrong here but uh, at the end of the day if you have a a tight timeline it always has to be reviewed by somebody just have a bit more humility and like let things go you need to let some things go that's my biggest uh, advice just vomit draft feedback let it go there we go (laughs) kill
1: your inner perfectionist
2: yeah exactly (laughs) vomit on them and then kill them
0: yeah it sounds to me like you know puke it up and also ask someone to hold your hair back as you puke
1: Sender is sponsored by the design team at Klarna. It's produced by Jumotan Andersson, Francesca Cutullo, Melanie Lefbird, Anoushi Hussain and Rachel Rosenson. To learn more about your regular career paths on the Klarna design team, head to klarna.com careers. A special thanks to Adrian Hagström for our music throughout this episode. Got questions you want to hear other designers answer? Write us at thesender@klarna.com. See you next time!